Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College and the Editor-in-Chief for War Room. Thanks for joining us for another episode. So we, just like everyone else, have been talking quite a lot lately about pandemics in general and COVID-19 in particular and all that that means for us individually and organizationally. Today, I'm joined remotely, of course, by two guests to talk about the role that culture plays in the Department of Defense and military responses to crises within the American homeland. First, we have Dr. Michelle Devlin, who is Professor of Global Health at the University of Northern Iowa and is also an adjunct research professor with the Strategic Studies Institute here at the Army War College. And second, we have Brigadier General Retired Steve Warnstadt, who is former Deputy Commanding General for Operations with the Iowa National Guard. And Steve is also a 2012 graduate of the U.S. Army War College uh, DDE, or Distance Education Program. So Michelle and Steve, welcome to A Better Peace. Thank you so much. Very glad to be here, Jackie. It's very good to be here as well. Thank you. Great. So as we know, the world is in the middle of responding to a pandemic crisis, We are uh, learning new things every day, and things are changing day to day. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about the pandemic and COVID-19 and some of the things that we're observing and uh, some lessons that I hope we're learning. But I think this podcast should also give us an opportunity to really think about what the crisis might mean, what responses to it might mean uh, for the future of the Department of Defense. So, uh, Steve, I'm going to ask this first question uh, of you based on your background and your expertise. Uh, So we know that the DOD and military personnel have already been an important part of the pandemic response, uh, especially in different states as National Guard troops are called up. Uh, Could you lay out for our listeners uh, just a little bit about what that looks like on the ground and how military personnel uh, really have been involved in the pandemic response over the last few weeks? Well, sure. The uh, you know, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has uh, is supporting the Federal Emergency Management Agency uh, in about 47 different missions right now, I believe. They uh, have around 2,000 members that are deployed as of uh, middle of April. Uh, there's urban medical augmentation units that are supporting uh, hospitals in New York, New Jersey, Detroit, and a number of other places. Obviously, getting a, a lot of attention is the uh, U.S. Naval Hospital ships, the Comfort and the Mercy, uh, that are providing uh, support on the east and west coasts. And then uh, not as prominent on a national level, but certainly within each state, the National Guard has been activated in at least 44 states with a total of about 29,000 troops uh, providing community-based testing, logistical support, uh, food distribution. They're cleaning and disinfecting uh, places. Uh, and in at least one state, I know they're also operating call centers to to fill in. So really the, the key thing is what the, what the military is doing is filling in capability gaps. Uh, because in any disaster, you're never going to have enough of everything. 
what really is the unique feature of a pandemic is that it's being applied nationally at the same time. So whereas in a typical disaster, say a hurricane, uh, different states are able to support the affected states. In this situation, everyone is being affected. Uh, the degree to which they're being affected is a little bit different. That creates a greater stress on the capability gaps uh, that are in existence. So that's where the, uh, the federal government plays a, a larger role in, in providing resources to meet those needs. And it has to balance it among the states. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense to me. If I think about natural disasters like hurricanes or tornadoes, um, they're pretty localized. And so it seems obvious that you could surge capacity from one state into another while people who are in the affected area, you know, are taking care of themselves and their communities and their families uh, that are also likely affected. But here we have things that are spread out and it's a national problem. So it seems like national coordination or national uh, level efforts might really be required. One of the things that this brings to mind, though, is a tension uh, that we sometimes see in the United States about uh, how Americans might respond when they see uniformed military personnel uh, performing what they understand to be military operations or tasks uh, on American streets or in American institutions. Uh, so, of course, on social media, which is maybe not the best place to get all your information, uh, but in also in other public discourse, we sometimes see maybe fears or claims about the imposition of martial law or that the military is taking over uh, and the implication that this is scary and dangerous. Um, Steve, do you think this is a problem or really a widespread perception? I don't think so. Again, the thing that's unique with this is that it is a uh, health disaster that is across the board. Uh, I know the practice in many states is actually, uh, especially in hurricane states, has been actually to to have trucks driving around in order to help reassure people that, hey, stay in place, you're going to be taken care of because the National Guard, for example, is present. Uh, so that really depends upon the state. But generally speaking, I don't I don't think it has that big a, uh, it doesn't have a negative impact. I think it's generally been reassuring to most people in most places. But I think the thing that has kind of caught people off guard is because you have the enactment of uh, emergency proclamations by governors or the, the president, you know, invoking var various emergency powers that will naturally give rise among some people within the country that there is going to be some type of overall takeover by the by the government. Uh, that's where public engagement by military is critical. So bottom line, I think generally that military presence is one of reassurance. However, when you tie it into these executive orders by governors and the president, that has been part of the thing that has caused some concern among some people. So, Michelle, this next question is going to be for you, and it's about uh, how we prepare for military operations and deployments. Um, when military personnel go overseas, uh, they engage in a lot of training, obviously, before they go. And one of the things that's received really renewed attention uh, in the past couple of decades is the importance of culture. Uh, so the idea, right, is that our troops need to know uh, or at least be familiar with uh, the customs and habits, social relationships, uh, religion, language. Uh, in short, they need to know the culture of the places they're going to. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about why this is so important in military operations? Sure, absolutely. And I would say I got an extra appreciation of this as being very critical when I served myself as 
a U.S. Army civilian in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom. And I think it's so critical to understand the environment that we're operating in. And we do it for everywhere, every type of organization in general, companies and businesses and you know, hospitals and nonprofits. They have a real need to understand the community that they're serving and their clientele and the people, the customers they're interacting with or the patients they're serving. And in the military and in the you know defense programming, we have an absolute need to understand the population, the white layer, the civilian layer, or the area of operations, the theater that we're engaging in. We can't function in a vacuum without understanding who the people are that we're interacting with on a daily basis. And this is particularly critical, even in domestic operations from a disaster and a mass emergency response standpoint. Who are these people? Who are the communities that we're serving in? What are their languages? What are their beliefs? What are their cultural practices? What are the demographics? And we're not talking about individuals. We're talking literally about populations. Who are the populations within our communities? Uh, you know, the age structure, the family structure, who are the primary employers, who are the anchor companies, who are the key leaders that we need to be engaging with, what languages are spoken, how do we get messaging out, what's the what best way to reach certain communities, who are the most vulnerable within the vulnerable population. So all of this becomes really critical to us to understanding this civilian area of operations that very often we suddenly, you know, arrive in and are expected to function in at a very high level. Again, with disasters, you know, I think our role is to manage chaos, right? And try to figure out how to function in chaos. You cannot do that without first understanding the environment and the populations and the people and that broader cultural environment that we're going to be functioning in. Sure. And so much of that seems intuitive. It seems, well, not easy to do because culture is complicated. Uh, and we've certainly learned a lot about the complexity uh, in in the past few years. But it seems obvious that culture is something that we should pay attention to. And if we think about what's happening right now in the United States, uh, what units and individuals are doing right now, should we start to think about the U.S. homeland as an area of operations for the U.S. military? Uh, and if that makes sense. What kind of cultural uh, cultural training or cultural terrain training and thinking should we be doing about the U.S., about our own homeland? Should we be thinking about operations here in the same way that we would think about operations in, say, Iraq or Afghanistan? Hmm. Well, I can respond as someone who is a professional culturalist, right? Uh, basically, I'm someone that does a lot of work in the medical anthropology field, in the global public health field, and I'm sure General Warnstadt will add some comments after. But it, in my head, it is important to understand these populations and the demographics because they are not necessarily what we are used to seeing in the U.S. And I think it's obvious for us when uh, any our armed forces or the you know, service members are deployed uh, somewhere around the world. It, it, we all get it that it's important to understand that country, the culture, the subcultures, the locations where we are. But I would argue that it's equally important. In fact, it may be even more important to understand that area of operations and the, uh, you know, just the communities that we're serving in, even domestically, because it's deceptively surprising. 
And I know a lot of times we, you know, we live in the communities domestically where we often do disaster response and, you know, we think we know them, but often we don't. And there are many, many subcultures and kind of these undercurrents of different populations and issues and challenges and strengths and opportunities that go on in different environments. And it's like, I can give you an example in the United States, um, you know, a lot of us, I, I'm sure a lot of us are doing planning. We figure, well, okay, most of us are going to speak English. We may want to be sure we've got some Spanish interpreters, uh, you know, a few other key languages. Well, in the United States, we're up to 430 different languages. In Iowa, which is where General Warnstad and I live and, and work, even in Iowa, which is generally perceived as a white homogenous state, very wrongly, we are up to almost 200 languages in the state of Iowa for a variety of demographic reasons that I can address later. And if you're not familiar with that, it can really throw you, especially if we have units that are deploying, let's say they're, uh, you know, uh, medical teams that are augmenting, you know, somewhere a situation. We have communities where you've got 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 different nationalities languages. Maybe a third of those languages are rare languages. You cannot even find that interpreter for them with a telephone. Uh, those populations may have very low literacy. And so if uh, our uh, military and other groups, hospitals and all are rec you know, relying on written handouts and material to educate on the virus, that information may or may not be actually received appropriately or understood by the population. We have an incredible level of religious diversity now in the U.S., racial, ethnic diversity, of course, we know that. In fact, by the year 20, 2030, 35, 2040, somewhere in that range, it's anticipated that the United States as a whole will be a majority minority country. In other words, if you add up all of the uh, ethnic minority groups together, they would outnumber the white European descent population percentage in the country. And, uh, and let alone economic uh, diversity as well, and a growing share of people of the middle class falling into lower income levels and just more poor people. And the challenge, especially with the coronavirus in particular, is that we are seeing inequity right, and disparities, health disparities in the breakouts and how it's affecting certain populations very dramatically. You know, we initially were worried about older, uh, older white populations, frankly, and they obviously still are a major population uh, that we need to care about. But we're now seeing the rates explode disproportionately in ethnic minority populations like African-Americans. Uh, here in Iowa in the Midwest, we have a lot of meatpacking communities. We are seeing those rates explode in meatpacking communities where the workers are primarily, you know, refugee and immigrant workers. And so all kinds of and homeless populations and others are being disproportionately affected. So again, it's these aren't things that we often think about when we do American disaster deployments and suddenly in two or three days, we're expected to set up entire field hospitals or COVID testing operations for a meatpacking plan. We just assume everybody, you know, everybody's going to be white and speaking English. That is not the case anymore in the U.S. It's a very diverse and very fluid area of operations. And I think General Warnstaff may want to add a few comments on that too. 
my background is, really was in, in intelligence, and you can't do any operations without doing in the civilian environment a intelligence preparation of the operating environment. You don't use intelligence preparation of the battlefield in a civil context. It's the operating environment that we're operating in, and you need to analyze and understand who is it that you are working with. As Michelle was pointing out, there's a lot of health disparities. Uh, you see that just in recruiting uh, and the difficulty of recruiting people who are physically uh, fit to, to serve in the military. Even in an Iowa situation where you have this perception of, well, it's just a bunch of uh, white farmers, I can take you to a 60-mile radius down in southeast Iowa um, where you have Kelowna, which has a large Amish population. And the way in which you're going to integrate and interact with that population is going to be different than when you go 40 miles south of there to the Maharishi Vedic city, which was uh, really, it's the home for folks who practice uh, transcendental meditation. Uh, that is vastly different than the context that you would run into about 50 miles further to the west with the city of Pella, which is a heavily Dutch community uh, and has very uh, different practices than those other two communities. And so even in a place that you think you might know in Iowa with a you know Caucasian population, you're going to see great disparities in the culture and the way in which you interact in each of those communities is going to be a little bit different. Not to mention the, the significant uh, challenges that is faced, as Michelle brought out, by the, the large uh, minority population, large racial changes, large number of refugee immigrants, the whole wide range of people. You need to have some degree of understanding of that before you uh, operate in that area, because just like operating overseas, if you operate in one context uh, and under the best of intentions, you may inadvertently cause hostility or suspicion by not understanding the environment in which you are trying to help people. You can do the best job that you can, but sometimes the way you go about doing it does need to change according to the context, the culture in which you're living. And that does take place uh, even in places like Iowa, just as it, might, uh, as it would in, say, in Afghanistan or Iraq. I mean, it's interesting and maybe even important that you're both from Iowa, uh, because we, I think, often use Iowa as shorthand to mean a relatively homogenous place in terms of racial and ethnic diversity. But you all have pointed out really expertly just how diverse even Iowa is. And as you were talking, I was struck um, by the enormous diversity and complexity of the United States. Uh, and this has really been a feature since its founding, where there have been so many different communities with different needs and languages and traditions and customs. Uh, and the mythology of what it means to be American, this is something that we you know, really often celebrate as a great strength. But it also introduces significant challenges, I think, for the people who are doing crisis response and trying to manage um, the situation in the United States right now. So if we understand that diversity and complexity and that understanding is a first step, um, what do we do next? If we take that understanding of the environment, what tools um, do community leaders or military leaders have for gaining and attaining the kind of deep cultural knowledge that would make them most effective uh, in this in this environment, um, what can military commanders and military personnel, uh, you know, do to learn about the rich 
diversity and complexity of the communities you're describing? So I can, uh, I'll, I'll respond uh, from a sort of a, a global public health perspective. And then uh, General Warren said, I think, can comment more from the military perspective. One of the things I emphasize a lot in today's, uh, you know, rapidly changing human terrain of the U.S., is to get out of the office, <laughs> get out of the unit, get and and immerse yourself in the surrounding communities. So you, you need to do book knowledge. You need to do a lot of Google searches. I mean, quite frankly, I carry my cell phone with me at all times, almost like a field ethnographer, so that I can immediately look up different statistics, different data, demographic patterns, trends, articles, things like that very quickly, even in the field about particular communities or areas where I might be or where I will be going to within the next few days, the next few weeks, the next few months. So I do all of that basic demographic background. And we're lucky today because we have such great information on the internet. You can you can get demographic information, you can run census data, you can get local reports. Um, but then I supplement that information with human interaction. So for instance, a lot of the micro diversity or micro plurality trends that we're seeing in the US of diversity within diversity, and a lot of the rapid demographic changes and new populations and communities, they may or may not be recorded by census uh, mechanisms. And the only way to really know about them is to go to these communities that you're going to be working in and start talking to people. I always, I often call up the school teachers in different school districts that teach uh, ESL, you know, the TESOL or the English as a second language kids. They can usually tell you right over the phone what countries those kids are coming from, what nationalities. I talk to mayors, I talk to city councils, I talk to religious leaders and faith leaders because many new populations are very uh, religious. And these faith leaders are very interested in connecting with the government and integrating and these kinds of things. They can provide a lot of information as well. I will even do quick Google searches on the ethnic associations themselves, for instance, even things that you think you might not have, like Liberian refugees in Iowa. And we worked on the Ebola case a number of years ago with uh, the Liberians. All, I, I state have people telling me they're not here, they're not here. It's like, no, they, they are. All you have to do is Google it. They come up right away with state associations. So yeah, guess what? They are here. Yeah, <laughs> they are here. And they're terrific. And they're fantastic. And they're as interested in reaching out to the host community as we are to them. And you can connect with them. So it's important to, again, do the field homework with real people. Go to uh, services, go to celebrations, festivals, markets, religious sites, housing units and interact with people, just be human, talk with them and connect with them in addition to things that the military uh, defense you know, units themselves can do. So Dr. Devlin really did hit on the, the key things. And you know, from an individual standpoint, that's the type of thing that you want to encourage all service members to do in some manner, shape or form. It gets a little bit more tricky uh, as it relates to an organizational perspective. Now, for, for the Guard, uh, the National Guard, for example, they're in the state, they they can be doing the interactions, especially with county emergency managers who should have uh, a lot of that basic level knowledge as well as the state uh, emergency management. But one of the other things that, that, that 
should be done is one of the things that I did, which was to bring in Dr. Devlin, you know, bring in that uh, subject matter expert from the university to talk about those types of issues. Uh, it, it's going to depend upon the environment, but it's probably best to, to, to wade slowly from a organiz military organizational standpoint into the community and reaching out to some of, the, some of those organizations. Plus, there's only a finite amount of time <laughs> that's available for, for the military. Uh, but that's where you really turn to your civilian experts, you know, the, the professors uh, the, uh, and the county emergency managers to help get you up to speed to, know, to make sure that you're aware of what it is that you need to know. Yeah, you can really, you know, develop a, what we would call cultural asset teams of people that do have a real interest and understanding of culture, uh, whether they're outside uh, specialists or even internal to, uh, you know, military units and have them run with a lot of that training, the briefings, the background information and the gathering of demographic information so that they can serve the populations more effectively. When I hear you talk about the things that we have to do to learn, it sounds like you're just advocating really deep research, which I appreciate as a, as a scholar. Uh, so we look not only in published data and primary sources, but also in the fieldwork sense of understanding networks and local communities. Uh, so I'm always a fan of approaches that are really research-oriented and that look to gathering data and then analyzing it to solve problems. Uh, and this is important as we think about the conversation beyond just the current crisis and the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, because although we don't know how long this will last or how long we're going to be in our houses or how long a national response is going to be required, uh, we are pretty certain that at some point in the future, this particular crisis will subside, uh, but others, others are going to come. Uh, there will be future operations for military personnel in the U.S., um, maybe responding to natural disasters, climate change, pandemics, other unrest, whatever it is. Uh, and so what would you imagine are the primary takeaways or the lessons uh, related to cultural terrain and cultural knowledge uh, that we should be learning now to apply to future operations? Well, I think the uh, COVID outbreak, for better or for worse, is good practice for all of us because we, um, it, this, is not go, this is not the first emerging infectious disease that we've had. We've had Zika, Ebola, dengue, and, and others. And increasingly, we're going to see more of these kinds of global pandemics as we experience lots of different global changes. Like, the, you know, you got to keep your boots on the ground, but kind of look up and understand the big picture trends of what's going on in the world, and then how it funnels down, not just the foreign countries we serve in, but even neighborhoods and our own communities that we serve locally with disaster response. And we fundamentally have major trends like growing urbanization around the world. Uh, we have globalization, international travel. We have uh, growth in our population and yet lowering fertility rates. And we have an aging population around in the US and around the world and a greater need for labor and international labor. Uh, again, all within things like climate change and different weather patterns and human migration patterns. So we have to pay attention to global trends, what they do in, on a continent and then within a nation and then even how they funnel down to us locally to really understand uh, how to keep on track of things for the future and what how we best uh, serve those rapidly changing VUCA 
environments, right, that are uh, volatile and uncertain and changing and ambiguous. We have those situations even in the U.S. locally, even on disaster deployments. The most important thing to remember for domestic operations is to recognize the civilian primacy, right, that basic civics, that the civilians are in charge. One of the big changes or challenges in operating is to recognize that it's the civilian entities that are going to be in charge and the end state is the resumption of normalcy. As you do that, it's important also for senior leaders to be prepared for the differences that exist within a federal system, especially, say, from an active duty standpoint. Uh, the levels, the type of support that's going to be provided, the, the cultural environment that you have with government entities in Iowa is going to be different than the, what will be provided in Louisiana, which will be different than New Jersey which will be different than Texas. None of them are wrong. And you have to go into the mindset of the military's role is to assist those functioning governments operate to their extent of uh, operating completely without our assistance, respecting that the, the, cultural, the cultural environment of each of those states helps shape the way that those states <laughs> or local governments even operate. So you have to make sure that people get reminded of, of that. You need to pre-identify uh, partners to help prepare to, uh, the ways to identify those cultural differences within each locality, region, state, whatever. So whether that's reaching out to a Dr. Devlin or reaching out to not just doing the internet research, but the most important thing is to get people because this is about serving people at the end of the day and establishing face-to-face -face contact is critical. And then the last thing I'd say is, uh, you know, the skill sets from a combat environment are, are just as applicable in a domestic environment. They're just applied differently. You know, there are joint publications on foreign, home, uh, foreign humanitarian assistance. It's really not all that different than domestic support uh, or defense support to civ civil authorities. You're doing a lot of the same types of missions. It's just where you're doing it and understanding the context in which you're delivering that service that's going to change. Wow. So I feel like we've covered a really tremendous amount of ground in the past 30 minutes. Uh, and I just want to recap a little bit of what we've talked about. We've talked about the importance of understanding the cultural terrain in any environment to include the domestic area of operations. Uh, we've talked about research and establishing networks on the ground uh, to gain deep knowledge of communities. We've talked about really getting to know uh, local communities and local leaders well, we've talked a bit about tracking uh, and tracing the relationship between global trends, national needs, and the specific impacts on local communities. We've touched on civil military relations and civics. And we'll throw in another census reminder that if you have your census form in your mail pile, uh, to fill that out and drop it in the, drop it in the mailbox, or you can do it online. Uh, because we know that demographic data is actually tremendously important in understanding local, uh, state level, and national trends. Uh, and then we have a finally an overall reminder of the tremendous diversity and complexity of the United States and the communities that we live and work in uh, and that we're working right now to keep healthy and safe. Um, so of course, we're going to rely on local and state emergency management. And we also rely on the U.S. military to help surge capacity and fill gaps uh, in times like this one. Uh, and so to, to close, I'd really like to thank Michelle Devlin and Steve Warnstadt for joining me uh, today for this really important conversation. My pleasure. Also, thank you so much, Jackie, for covering this really important topic. Yes, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. And with that, I'm Jackie Witt signing off from War Room. I hope you'll join us again soon. And that concludes our program. 
Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.